I may not be the best possible witness for dealing with anger. And of course, that may be your amen also. When Marilyn and I got married, we had a baby within the first 11 months of our marriage. And when my son was about six months old, we were having a serious discussion. Y'all know what a serious discussion is between a man and a woman? All out argument. So I was given my opinion quite forceful and strong, and my wife said, stop, quit, time out, I, but, nope, not another word, stop, stop. She says, we are not going to have a marriage where there's any yelling going on, no raised voices. I pointed my finger at her and said, my voice wasn't raised one decibel. I was expressing a very strong opinion. She says, inside you were yelling, and we're not having that either. (laughs) Oh, what do I do? Boy, what is this marriage thing? And she says, your left eyebrow was up, and I knew inside you were yelling. I thought about that for several years. And then another occasion would come up, and I would say, honey, I'd like to talk with you. Some of you have probably never been really angry. Some of you are so sophisticated that you use real diplomatic language. And I respect you gentle souls that are out there that say, oh, he gets under my skin a little bit occasionally. She confuses me. I was a little put out. You know, he's not very logical. Or she disappoints me sometimes. We use this real peaceful language when inside we're furious at them. It's a little dishonest sometimes when your manners and etiquette are so high that it's not actually truthful. We do get angry. Amen, church? We do. Circumstances bother us. People bother us. Sometimes God's the one we're angry at. How could he do that? Why would he do that to me? So let's look in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus begins with the challenge here. He says, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but... I had the mistake years ago in some mixed company to say, and here's a really beautiful but. It doesn't fly well in sermon material in the average setting. But here is the but. I tell you. And these are Jesus' words. It's not somebody's opinion. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. Jesus says, here's what you've heard. Most of our theology, our morals, are based upon what was caught, not taught. Who you were around, Uncle Charlie, grandparents, neighbors, who came to your family reunions, teachers, coaches, who you're around, it's almost like catching the measles. We have this way of life that we think is the standard, is right and good and above board. Jesus says, but here's what I tell you. Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Jesus is telling us in this passage, life is not about the big sins. None of you, I don't think, have to worry about murder. There's not been any pedophilia here. None of y'all are bank robbers. And the obvious things, Jesus says that our sins, they are little ones that God is watching. He cares about. The word raka here is really simple Greek. When I go to the nursing home, I try to teach them a Greek or Hebrew word. Like, what's hallelujah mean? So the raka means empty. Very simple. And when you apply it to someone and says, he or she is raka, it really means empty-headed. Fool, you idiot. This person with no thinking power. Is Jesus really saying that calling someone names and being angry disqualifies you from heaven? Some of us grew up, my wife says my family's favorite hobby was to argue. Whoever was the greatest debater and could win the argument was the winner for the day. Anyway, she has tamed that monster. But we still have the potential for what comes out of our mouth to be sin that God is not pleased with. The issue is not being angry or not being angry. It's how do you handle your anger? What do you do with it? Flip back to that passage we used for call to worship. We almost got to the part that I love the most. Paul, writing to the people at Ephesus telling them about their early stages of Christian life and what they were taught and how they were to be led. Verse 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off the falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor. We are all members of one body, and in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. When you're angry, recognize it. It's there. It's real. My feelings are hurt. My opinion is vastly different than yours. And there's a whole group of other things we can chase here, but I'm not going to do it. Josh only left me 15 more minutes. Does God get angry? Some of you were here this morning. What did the Ninevites say? Let us do this, this fasting and this humility that God in his fierce anger may not carry out his plans against us. But we're not going to chase that rabbit. There's another rabbit that could be chased here by saying raka to your brother and sister. Is this within our church family only? Does this apply only to how we treat each other as fellow Christians? That's a whole separate issue. Jesus is trying to tell us here that he that has better choices for us. For us to turn on the silent treatment with someone else, the mouthiness, the insult, the immature language is not God's best choice for us in our anger. 
Our Sunday school class has been working through the book of James. I appreciated Marshall when uh, Dr. Brooks said something I feel bad about you missing part of this when you're in the new members course. And Marshall correctly said, it's all right. The four weeks of the new member course, you'll only be in verse five when I get back to class. In James, some of you remember the passage there about in your anger, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Why can't we do that? Somebody challenges us, the anger's built up in it, we're furious. Why can't we just put a clamp on those lips? Part of it because of what you've caught. What you were around that you caught like the measles. And you have to speak out, you have to bark back and growl and snarl. In Christ you can overcome that. That uh, his best choice. There's several other passages. Some of you, when you think about anger, 1 Corinthians 13. True love is not easily angered. When you're on the edge and somebody does something and you immediately are furious, frustrated, we are so ready to make this list and remember. I remember the time he did this, the time he said that, the time he went there, the time he did that. In our anger, don't keep that list. Deal with it today. The sooner you can get forgiveness, the sooner you can get reconciliation. That's the beautiful part of this marriage that we're loving, watching on the hardens here. I don't know how long ago they were divorced, but to see them come back and be reconciled. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. When I first felt God calling me to become a pastor... No one told me, the DOM and stuff that I consulted, what do I do? How do I move towards being a pastor here? But the Holy Spirit said, Gordon, you've got some people in your past that you're not right with. Before you get in the pulpit, before you begin to represent me on this other level, I want you to clean up these relationships. That's what part of our opportunity is tonight. For us to search our minds, is there anybody I'm crossways with? Is there anyone I've had harsh words with where that fury's burning in me and I've been angry? In verse 23, back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. God's best and first choice for us when we're angry is to get to the solution. The passage we read in Ephesians, don't go to bed just laying there thrashing all night long. I should have said, I wish if I had to do over again, I'd tell him this or I'd tell her that. That's a horrible way to go to bed. Amen? Horrible way. This passage is telling us one of our number one priorities is reconciliation with the rest of mankind. All of them. Amen? All of them. The in-laws, the outlaws, the neighbors, the crazy people you work with. You've got people in your circle of relationships. All of them. Be reconciled to them. I'm a big follower of Dr. Tom Rayner, who has been headed up the Sunday School Board and used to lead the Billy Graham School of Evangelism here at Southern Seminary. And he was always quoting the six pillars of Christian faith. 
And the way to remember that is every pious frog must wiggle daily. The E, evangelism. The P, prayer. Every pious frog, fellowship. We need evangelism, prayer, fellowship. Must wiggle daily. Ministry, worship, and discipleship. But Jesus here in this passage hasn't listed any of those. This is above in the calling, the requirements, the demand is to be reconciled. If you've got anybody, anywhere, sometimes it's somebody that's already dead and gone. How do I reconcile this memory and all those harsh words? Because we have a tape recorder that runs in our head. You remember that person's tone of voice when they were degrading, when they were embarrassing, when they were humiliating you. And the tape recording keeps running over and over of the way they said that and how the fight developed until you get it resolved. Don't go worship. Don't go bring me any offerings. Don't do any acts of service. There's no act of sacrifice that I want. I want you to be reconciled to your fellow man. So how do we do it? One of the things already was settle it quickly. Can you do it? Can you eat some crow? Can you go back and take responsibility for the parts you don't even see? I want to apologize. I do not want you to go home, me to go home, with all this ill will, anxiety, and tension in me, in you. Let's find some peace. In some ways, we could go back and say, the whole Sermon on the Mount is the great Jewish word, shalom. Peace. All of the things throughout the beginning to the end of the Sermon on the Mount will raise us up to higher levels of peace in our lives. I have three grandchildren. I'm always preaching to them, even though Josh Womble said, I've never heard you preach. You've been blessed, Josh. God just spared you. <laughs> but I'm always preaching to the grandchildren. Gary, you do that some, don't you? Preach to the grandkids. About the big three. One of my grandsons is a genius. And he's really smart. Really smart kid. But I tell him, how are you doing on the big three? He says, remind me again, Grandpa, what's the big three? Communication skills, problem-solving skills, and people skills. The Sermon on the Mount is about all three of those. How to communicate. How to develop the problem-solving skills in relationships. So, how do we move to a healthier position? One is simplify your lives. When you are not juggling 20 balls and somebody knocks two of them out of their orbit, you don't get furious. There are ways for our lives to not be so complicated. Choose to do less. I'm always trying to take things away from our pastor so that he has less to do. If I can take one thing that he doesn't have to do, and pass it on to some new family like Heather and them back there. I gave them a job assignment with no official title or position. 
we can simplify our lives. Part of it has to do sometimes with less stuff. When our family went from having one car to two cars to three cars, it was horrendous trying to keep everything running. Less. When you've got less land, what would you do if you're Jay Leno and you own 150 antique automobiles that you're trying to keep running and polished and, and uh, oiled and stuff? I don't want to keep 150 running. Erlene has been on a binge here for about two years now of going through every closet in our house, every shelf, every drawer, and we're throwing stuff out and giving stuff away. What a blessing. Less stuff. I'd love to see Josh go back and do some preaching about materialism before Christmas. Y'all remember the internet sensation last year at Christmas about the family where the mother wanted to give each of her kids a gift for every day of the year? So at Christmas, they had 365 gifts to open. She's working all kinds of jobs, and she's shopping in January and February and March, and I'm behind schedule here. I'm not going to get the 365 gifts unless I've got to keep going, keep going. Stuff will chase you and eat you like a fire-breathing dragon. Amen? Stuff will. I was on a mission trip in Indianapolis a few years ago with the youth from another church. Our host church was an older church, almost a dying church. The basement of that church had eight old, unworkable refrigerators in their basement. Their fellowship hall was their basement, and every time one died, they got a new one and just left the old one down there just kept accumulating junk. Will any stuff add to the quality of your spirituality? No. On the one hand, you know that in your mind, but why are you keeping that stuff? Earlene would like to help me clean out my garage. Every day I try to throw something away from my garage. She can't tell I've made a dent in it yet. But I'm throwing stuff away and giving stuff away. So simplify your life. Have a less complex schedule. There's one of those lies when we go back to that Ephesians passage about don't give the devil a foothold in your life. There's a thing that says when you're really busy, it feeds your ego. I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I must be somebody. Not necessarily. You can clean up. You have choices. I've been trying to retire for a while now. Earlene's had a lot of fun with that. Uh, I've quoted a little bit about that. It's being closer to being semi-retarded. But it has to do with being a yes person. Somebody calls. I've got a crisis. Can, Gordon, can you come fix this? Can you fix this? I don't want anybody else in my house but you. You're the only one I trust. Well, that sure feeds my ego. It doesn't help my retirement. It doesn't help where my heart is. I want to spend more time serving the Lord. Yeah, I can serve the Lord doing those, but there's only, after your 30,000th toilet you've repaired, it's not quite as much worshipful act anymore. I fix a lot of toilets, bow before them, on my knees, working on another toilet, another toilet. Choose. Make conscious, deliberate, prayerful choices to do less. I wonder about 
the list. Erlene has a list of over 20 prospects of young women that could be in Sunday school every Sunday morning. I've got another list of about 30 that young couples, not in Bible study, not in fellowship, not engaged with their church family because of their choices on Saturday night. If you're going to be at church, if you're going to be in a right attitude of worship on Sunday morning, does it or does it not begin on Saturday? Amen. It does. The choices we make to walk away and say no to this. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for asking. I've got a full plate, and uh, I'll see if we can pray somebody through to answer that solution for you, to be part of that solution for you. Some of you know I bought a flip house I've been working on. It's near the Brooks house right off of Gene Snyder there beside Lowe's. Any of you have been that way in the last uh, six months, they're building a massive storage unit in there. Million-plus-dollar facility with storage cubicles for everybody to put their stuff in that they don't have room for in their house. What's going to happen to Grandma's treadle sewing machine when I'm dead and gone? Am I going to worship the old sewing machine? The dresser. The depression china. God says, reconcile with your brother and sister. Let all the stuff go. There's no service at church. There's no act of worship you can commit that will please me more than you to be right with your fellow man. Is reconciliation with everybody you've ever known, is that one of your highest priorities? I hope after tonight it is. When we have our altar call this evening, I'd like for us to do it a little different than normal. Sometimes we come up and pray with whoever's led the service, but I want us to come to the altar. If you can't kneel, you come sit. We got three, we got a lot of footage across the front here. Come and have a seat. And you and God have a talk about whoever is on your mind that you've had harsh words with, that stuff is not settled. In-law, outlaw, neighbor, someone you've worked with a long time ago, brother, sister. As much as it is possible with you, Paul, in the end of Romans, be at peace with everybody. As much as it's possible on your side, be at peace with them. Which one of your relationships is not at its best? What's hindering that relationship from being what it should be? We have a time for you to come, this front pew, confess to the Lord, call on God for his help. Some of you may know, some of you don't. One of the places I've really appreciated my pastor, Josh has challenged me on some of the places where I've been wrong. I've got a lot more peace in my life for those things he's trying to help me get right with. Sometimes you need somebody else. Say, hey, I've got this loose end in my life. Would you pray for me and continue praying until the victory is won? When I first felt God calling me to come into the ministry, I was afraid to tell my wife. I was afraid to tell my mother.
My mother used to call me on Sunday afternoons. I was leading Sunday school in a church. I was leading worship and music programs. And my mom says, one of our old neighbors has been praying for you. She says, whatever the conflict is, she will be faithful until the victory is won. This lady had no way of knowing that God was calling me into ministry and I needed a prayer warrior. I needed a partner. And out of the blue, hundreds of miles away, God puts it on her heart to pray me through to the victory. I have a sin that's involved in my life that I've been fighting with for some time. I'm not going to publicize it and give Satan any glory on part of that. But if any of you would commit to me and say, Gordon, I'm going to be a prayer partner till you win the battle with that sin. When you get to be 67 years old, you've won a lot of battles. God and I are on the same page on 999 things. And I got three that Satan's trying to get some glory out of just big time. Just two or three. It just kind of takes a little bit of the joy out of life. So as we think about a time of coming to the altar here, you're free to come up and take a pew, take a knee and a bow, or take somebody with you. But as far as it's possible with you, be reconciled to all of your fellow man. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the way you prick our hearts the way you draw us into your glory and a higher level of spiritual maturity. Heal the pain of broken relationships within our church body, Lord. We've got things that have been nagging us for years. Broken relationships. So show us how to resolve those, Lord. As we softly sing Amazing Grace, uh, lead these people to the front of the church in an altar time for it. We can sing this from memory, I think. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, Toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we Ten thousand years Bright shining as the sun We've no less days To sing God's praise 
than when we first begun. Lord, as we continue in prayer, set us free. Let us find the shalom, peace that you have desired for us from the beginning of our salvation. Heal every relationship. Take back every harsh word. Apply Holy Spirit ointment to the open wounds. And thank you for the way you're going to heal these relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.